Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, August 3rd, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaber. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, the genius of view source in web browsers, idealism versus reality in responsive web design, and freedom versus control in the coming wireless society. The Niche Podcast is next. Hello. Hello. So it sounds like you're a winner. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, I mean, I'm not sure if that was a, a grand prize winner or if it's just you know if it's some other prize. The email was light on details, so I responded to see what's up with it. Cool. So, uh, yes, for the benefit of the listener, Kelly, what did you sign up for? What's it called? Icinium. That's how I'd pronounce it. Yeah. And it looks like uh, kind of a uh, titanium mobile cross-platform mobile development tool. But uh, looks like you might be getting free version of the developer tool, so you can test it out and see what you think. Yeah, yeah. I've got got um, got the beta invite a while ago, and <laughs> I actually feel kind of bad, almost feel guilty that I won because I haven't had a chance to do much anything, much of anything at all with the. Um, you know, as far as poking around in their in their beta version, so yeah, so yeah, I know the feeling. You're like, you sign up for a beta, and then they start sending you all these emails when the beta finally starts. They're like, "What do you think?" And you're like, oh, "I haven't tried it yet." <laughs> you just get them like all the time. Yeah. Well, actually, along the same lines, I downloaded um, Sencha Architect Two the other day. And I'm in my 30-day trial period, which hopefully I'll take advantage of. But I don't, have you heard of Have you heard of this? Uh, actually, I was briefly looked at it a couple of days ago. Um, I went to to Cinch's website to download the new version of Sense of Touch, Sense of Touch Two. Mm-hmm. Actually, I guess that may not be all that new anymore. But yeah, it's newish. Yeah. So, so what's funny is, um, it kind of you know it's a so sencha touch in case in case the listener doesn't know is a a javascript based framework that's built on top of the xjs library that um, is a really really nice high fidelity high polish um, cross-platform mobile development like web app development framework and it's sort of like uh, jquery ui for webkit and they've been, and it's been out for a while. They, like Kelly just said, they released uh, version two. Is earlier this year, I think. And they started to, to release tools, and one of them is called Sencha Architect, which is a, a WYSIWYG editor for uh, mobile applications. And so, what's funny about it is, I'm generally not a huge fan of WYSIWYG editors. Um, because I'm just more of a code guy, I'm a, a text editor type of guy, and I always get nervous about um, using uh, an IDE that is essentially a code generator and potentially getting stuck not being able to do something that I need to do. Yeah, yeah, and I always get kind of nervous about uh, generating code usually doesn't stand up to the, the type of quality or, or I guess maybe not so quality, but cleanliness that I like. Right. 
Yeah, it seems like a lot of a lot of like like the classic example for me, and, and this is going years back, so it's not really fair. But but when Dreamweaver first hit the scene, and I am literally talking like it's over ten years ago was the last time I looked at it. The yeah. the code that it would it would uh, create it was clearly not meant to be even looked at. It was just like it was almost like Adobe was saying, "Don't touch the code." It'll just be under there working um, and only edit anything through the IDE, through Dreamweaver. It clearly wasn't meant to be. You know, the, the fact that someone may want to edit it, it, it wasn't even really a consideration. It was just you, you click a button, there's your, your code generated, and you, know, you, you just leave it. Yeah, you're not supposed to touch it. Um, and that never really sat well with me because the the, I don't know, I just feel like the part of the reason the web has it is you know got so much traction and just caught on so amazingly has to do with the the ability to view source on web pages and kind of teach yourself how to do stuff as you're going along and the fact that that code was such a mess um it kind of it one it made it really hard to figure out what the code was doing and how it worked but Two, you know, people who didn't have Dreamweaver would then potentially think that's how things were done and then start hand coding stuff that way. I don't know. I just, it, it just sat wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I like, I like the idea that someone can view the source on, on my page and, and see how I've done something. Mm -hmm. And you, that's when I was first starting out. That's how I learned. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Me too. I suppose that's true for most people. It's just like that's the that's your intro to HTML and CSS and JavaScript is just viewing source on stuff. It's awesome. The thing about the web is that it's it's so accessible that that anyone can do anything. I mean, my my ten year old can sit down and start tinkering tinkering around and looking at source files and, and figuring things out. You know, it's certainly it you know it takes years of practice to get practice and, and skill to get to a, a professional level, but anybody can start tinkering and, and get involved and, and get something built and up there. Yep. Yeah. Assuming you have a computer, uh, you will, if you have a computer, you've got a web browser and you've got a text editor and that's all it really takes to start playing with it. It's like at the Olympic opening ceremonies in London a couple of days ago, Tim Berners-Lee of all people, uh, came on stage and typed out, you know, this is for everyone. And it was, it's, that's, that's like what the web is like for me. I think that's an important piece of it. So anyway, anyway, the point is what I'm working my way up to is that Center Architect outputs pristine code, like gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful JavaScript, nice. which is so cool. And, uh, and the interface, as much as I tend not to be a big fan of, of, WYSIWYG style uh, GUI editors, it's remarkably similar to uh, Mockingbird, oddly enough. So, you know, you've got this sort of stage in the middle and you've got components on the left-hand side that you can drag into the stage or the canvas. And then the right-hand side, you edit the properties of, of the elements. And it, I was immediately struck by the fact that, wow, you know, what if we did prototypes and mock-ups with this uh, and you know it wouldn't necessarily plug in all the handlers and all the all the uh, the code code the custom code but uh, 
you know, you could easily do screens in this and then that would be your starting point uh, and and you could move into a working version with the exact same prototype, you know, it's just it's just like it's kind of like wow. Yeah, that's that sounds like it would be very useful. You get a get a lot more functional end result from you know, from your prototype. Mm. It, of course, it doesn't have all the sharing features that something like uh, Mockingbird or Mockups or Balsamic have, but uh, it is really intriguing uh, to think of to think of the beginning of the project as being built as a working front, you know, not yeah. working skin, I guess. Yeah, that's that's really really interesting and pretty exciting. I'm actually I'm getting ready to start a little little mobile app with a with a friend of mine. And um, anyway, it's it's kind of kind of the the first time I will be doing the whole thing because I say with a friend of mine, but he's not a developer, so he's the idea guy. Right. So all of the work on it will actually be done by me, and he's going to do all the, the the marketing and selling and and kind of kind of QA on the interface and that kind of thing. Cool. So this will this will be my first time. In the past, when we've worked on things together, I've either it seems like I've either done the back end or I've done the front end. I haven't done kind of the whole whole kit and caboodle. Right. So, yeah, that's that's definitely something I want to. I think I'll download that and give it a give it a shot in the thirty day free trial. There. Mm, yeah, it's really cool, and you know it's very much oriented toward WebKit. Uh, but if you're gonna if you're going with like a hybrid app where you're gonna wrap it in PhoneGap or something, then that's uh, not anything to worry about yeah the other thing about it that was that i had sort of heard of but i didn't really have my head around was uh sencha io which is like they they basically have a back end as a service uh, which allows you to add server-side persistence and sync with the client-side data stores which is uh a real pain in the butt to write yourself so it's something i'm going to look into um even if even if only for um you know like prototyping and and that sort of thing but they really it is incredible it looks incre it looks too good to be true so i'm gonna actually <laughs> have at it and see if anybody uh if anybody listening has experience with that hit us up on twitter and let us know what you think yeah they Sencha has been pretty good about delivering on what they say they're going to deliver on, though. So, yeah, interesting and exciting to to look into that more for sure. Yeah, very cool. So it gets to the point after a while that uh, you know you just you're like, oh, I have to style another button. <laughs> it just you just get it gets old after a while. So it's fun to be able to you know put together screens really fast. And just be and just be done with it. So let's see what else have we got. A couple things to mention. Um, the last week uh, we talked about the first iteration of People.com mobile site, and that that was finally released. Um, that's the site where I did the the JavaScript for the image galleries, the photo galleries. And I had mentioned at the time that it was just a first version that had been released and the new final version it has been uh, released and it is looking good and they're getting good reaction to it, which is super nice. But 
really, really write up about that on Global Moxie. Yes, exactly what I was going to say, which is that Josh, um, Josh, aka Global Moxie, uh, did a long post about what went into it, why decisions were made, uh, you know, who was involved, and all of the, um, all of the sort of, you know, you, you go into these, you go into a, a project, and you have, at least, you know, speaking for myself, I have a kind of series of default positions that I'm going to take with any new project. You know, it, it should run everywhere. It uh, should be, you know, HTML front end with a, a nice API on the back end. It should be a REST API. It should, you know, yada, 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 all these things that should be. Uh, but when you, when you get involved with a legacy system, uh, especially from a huge company, has lots of different departments invested in different pieces, it's, uh, you know, when the rubber hits the road, you have to make some compromises and do like uh, a middle step or, a, you know, get halfway to the ideal. And he does a great job um, pointing out the challenges, you know, that are of that nature and, uh, and why certain decisions were made uh, and potentially where it could go in the future, how they could get to a, a more future friendly uh, web property. Because right now they've got like three different mobile sites. They've got a mobile site for uh, the one I worked on was basically for um, phones and and devices up to a seven inch screen size, uh, and um, there's an iPad site, dedicated iPadPeople.com site, and there is of course the RegularPeople.com, and you know we the the mobile site is built responsibly. It scales up very nicely. Uh, it it can it runs just fine in a non-touch screen environment. So it does, on the one hand, you, if, you know, if you didn't really know all the details, you could say, oh, well, they could just turn off regularpeople.com and turn off the iPad site and just use the mobile site for everything. But, you know, there are lots of different issues with that uh, in terms of, you know, not the least of which is advertising, but also analytics and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's a good read. Definitely, obviously, we'll put it in the show notes, but uh, it's, it's really, I really recommend reading it. Yeah, it's really interesting to see kind of some of the decision-making process there and, and the things that went into it because you know, you're always going to have stuff like that come up on every project. And I mean, you, you start with start with one idea in mind, and, and by the time you get done, you know it, it may or may not <laughs> resemble the original. Mm-hmm. But, but no, just some, of the, some of the pitfalls and, and things that you're going to run into along the way, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to see come into play. Yeah, I mean, this stuff is hard. And, you know, it's going to take time before um, everybody's kind of on the same page, so to speak. You know, clients, I mean, part of the problem is, is clients having desktop expectations and you know they have an expectation from the last what 20 years of web and certain things have changed and they it's like when we went from table-based layouts to css yeah yeah and getting getting clients to accept that that things don't have to be pixel perfect on on every device as long as you know it looks good and it works good yeah exactly you know what's the real goal i mean there never was pixel perfection if they thought there was if if marketing departments thought there was pixel perfect, you know websites, it's because they didn't try. They didn't personally test them in every browser. And it, yeah, there was Flash or whatever, but um, 
you know, we see where that went and, you know, HTML is where it's at. Pixel perfection is not. It just, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> to us. <laughs> I think I mean, it, it's trumped. Too. And, you know, I can, I can see the desire for it, but, you know, the user is not going to care if their experience looks different on Internet Explorer than it does on Chrome because, you know, they're going to be using one or the other. Yeah. So that gives me that gives me a couple of different ideas. Um, one is we'll link to this in the show notes, but I came across a link over the weekend um, that was called Style Tiles. Yes. And uh, it's it's you've seen that. Did you send me it? Uh, I don't think I sent it to you, but yeah, I've seen it before. Right. So it's basically an approach to um, designing that is in between, you know, mockups and uh, mood boards. So mood board is kind of like where you you on one virtual sheet of paper, a designer would pull together color swatches and font styles and um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, sort of visual design elements right. that could be assembled and reassembled into pages. And, uh, you know, and, and prototypes are prototypes or mock-ups or mock-ups. You know, they're, they're like VA screens. Uh, so they're fairly, there's not a lot of wiggle room when you're using mock-ups. Generally, when those go get approved, those are what get built pixel per pixel. So the style tiles concept is more of like a, it's kind of like widgety, where you you design little areas, like modules and little chunks of a page that could be mashed up into different combinations, and they can you can kind of pick and choose the pieces. Um, so it gives you more flexibility than a mock-up would, but it it's not as vague as a mood board. It's like a mood board with little implementations of a mood board, I guess. Is that is? Yeah, but, that's a good way to describe it because. So to me, it to me it feels pretty mood board ish, but yeah, you can certainly you do get a little more a little more refinement than you do with with just a mood board because I feel like a mood board is all about color and texture and typography and mm-hmm. and all of that, but it doesn't really have anything to do with sort of sort of layout and functionality. Right. And you can kind of start to incorporate some of that in in style tiles with you know, sort of a. Like you said, sort of building up widgets or, or or building up specific elements within a page. So it's, I mean, it's not really a full interface mock-up, but you can get a, a much more refined feel for, for the interface. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting to me is that uh, when you have prototypes or mock-ups and you go to do a build, um, actually implement them, it's not uncommon for uh, for the design to not work for some reason, yeah. and whether it's whether the interaction going from like a static mockup to a, an actual interactive application, whether it's the interaction and the client and everybody is like, yeah, it's, it's looked good on paper, but now that I'm playing with it, it stinks, uh, or it's just something that's that's that wasn't thought through properly, and you know, a a uh, you know, I don't know, like a list view has to turn into a split view or, or whatever. You know, you for, you basically just forgot something. And when you go to implement it, 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 it uh, surfaces. And you really, 
it can be hard because the mock-up is so rigid you don't have a you know you kind of have to go back to the drawing board a little bit but it, you know and have all these meetings you have to kind of reopen that can of worms and go back and and it happens repeatedly it's drag you know so the style tiles concept gives you a little bit of a not wiggle room but it gives you a tools it maintains your flexibility during development so you can say oh well you know i'll just grab these different the, the, i'll use these different tiles as the inspiration for this screen or this piece of the screen instead of throwing out the whole thing and starting from scratch right right yeah <laughs> It's funny because I've been experiencing a lot of that on the back end lately. So I mean, we need to, we need a, we need a style tiles for APIs. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's it happens, right? You know, you start to implement something, and you're like, oh, I totally forgot a model that we need, or I forgot to put a, you know, there needs to be like, yeah, this happened the other day. You were like, we don't have these records locked down by group and or whatever, and we can only. These are assigned to the people, but we can't retrieve them from the group level. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it, it ha I've never done a project that that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> so maintaining flexibility, but with but with some strong guidelines, so you're not just starting from scratch every time one of these things comes up is a uh, very helpful. Yeah. So yeah, there's a long post. There's a site called Style Tiles, uh, and there is a um, a, a blog post that led me to that site that has a really good step-by-step uh, write-up of the process that this designer uses to um, to work through a, a responsive design project with a client that that avoids that sort of start from scratch halfway through the build problem that uh, seems to be seems to be happening more and more. Yeah, I I have I've seen style tiles, but I haven't read haven't read that blog post, so I I came by it some other way. Mm. Yeah, I'll have to dig it up. I I saw it on Twitter, and I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. I think uh, Brad Frost tweeted it. Um, so that's uh, that's more. I suppose that we I'm seeing an ongoing theme in some of these shows, which is that we're talking about you know new tools, new process, new workflow for designing. Uh, for the mobile web and you know the the new web the everything web so nice to see nice to see more of that it feels like progress is happening yes and i've i've been playing with some new tools too well new to me oh yes yes it's i guess it's been around for about a year now maybe a little longer but i have been playing with vagrant mm. oh yeah cool and um you know, for for the benefit of, of our listener, uh, we're working on a project right now, and can't say a whole lot about it. But one of one of the problems we're running into with it is it's an API, but it's going to have to be a distributed system. It's going to live on on several different servers that may or may not have internet access at any given time, and it's a it's a complicated setup, mm. but. One of the issues we're dealing with there is how to, I guess how to how to package that sort of environment, where we can just go in and and quickly install this this system on a on a machine and have it up and running and working and make it, you know, so there's so there's very little need for configuration or setup work by the um, the client. Mm, exactly. Yep. 
And so we're, we were thinking probably going to have to go with some kind of virtualization for that. And it's a, it's a Ruby based API built on, built on Sinatra. So uh, last night I was looking at Vagrant for that. And what Vagrant does is it allows you to set up uh, virtualized development environments. So it, it looks like something I'm going to end up using a lot on for, for other projects as well. Uh, maybe not in production, but at least for development. So yeah, you can go in and set up a set up a virtualized development environment. Um, it uses VirtualBox as a the VM software. Hmm. And, you know, so so on your on your machine, you have you know just a, a completely separate VM that you can uh, sort of SSH into. Your all your code is shared between your your local computer and the virtual machine, so you can can develop all your code with all your local software, and and then fire up that virtual machine, and you can make it you know, build out that virtual machine to match your production environment, say, uh, which is good uh, when you're doing development because you may have software that you need to use within the context of your project that you don't necessarily want to install on your local machine. Right. Um, yeah. Especially in this case, uh, the, the project you're describing is um, the internet, the non-internet connected sites are going to be Windows. So does that, does Vagrant... Um, like with VMs I've used in the past, you would, you could install like, you know, Windows on a Mac inside of a, a virtual uh, yeah. environment. I'm sure it's the same here, right? One of, one of the good things that I like about this that I think will help a lot for this project is that once you're done develop, developing your application, Vagrant has a, a command there to just to package everything. So you can take... So it'll take the virtual machine that you started with and incorporate all of the code and customizations and things that you've made, and it'll make a new virtual machine image. And you can then distribute that virtual machine image and you know, run it through VirtualBox on the client computer. Mm. Wow. So we, can, so we can develop our application with all of the things that it needs to have and needs to be, and then we can just give the client that image and they just load up that, that virtual machine image and that's all there is to it. Wow. It's like an AMI. Pretty much, yeah. Cool. Wow. And what's the, uh, what's the like licensing and cost or whatever? Um, I'm not, well, Vagrant, Vagrant is free. VirtualBox is free. I'm not sure what kind of licensing restrictions there are, but I'm sure it's, you know, I, I, I know people who use this for, for commercial products all the time, so I'm sure the license allows for it. Wow, that's cool. I mean, you still have to pay for, like, a Windows license or whatever, but... Uh... Yeah, if you're going to have, a, if you're gonna have a, non, a non-free operating system on it, then you, you'd have to pay for the license. So, but, we pro- uh, but I guess we don't, right? Because you could, your whole environment you just set up like a regular linux environment inside of that and uh, and that would be able to run on a windows machine yeah we just set up set it up as a linux virtual machine and then they can run it on whatever operating system they have be it linux windows mac right 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 yeah like duh i should that was a stupid question on my part because obviously that's kind of the point where you can create an environment that's that's os independent and have it running wherever you want. Right. Sweet. So it's like it's operating systems that run anywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's gonna be that's great. That's super cool. 
do you have? I haven't gone to the other developers on it yet, but I'm thinking that would be a really good solution for this particular setup. Is there? It sounds great. Are there? I know there are other, you know, VMware or, or whatever. I'm not super familiar with virtualization. I didn't never really spend any time with it. Are there uh, competitors that you would consider? Do you think that this one is the best choice for the job for some reason? Is there something about it that you really like? Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with virtualization either beyond using VirtualBox. VirtualBox is what I've always used. And Vagrant Vagrant itself has some, some really nice Ruby integration. It's a so developing in sort of a Ruby environment, developing Ruby code, um, using Vagrant, you know, it's it's just a tool to build the virtual machine. Once the, so you know, it's a, it's as far as running it, that's all up to VirtualBox. Vagrant is just a tool for building the, the virtual machine. I see. So as far as that's concerned, I, I really like it a lot because it has a, a really nice Ruby integration. Hmm. Very cool. Well, I'm sure on, uh, what's the site, vagrantup.com, I'm sure they go on and on about the the advantages of them versus the comp- competition. So, all right, so we'll have a bunch of links in the show notes uh, for that stuff. It sounds like it sounds perfect for our particular situation but uh, also applicable to lots of other situations yeah yeah like i said i can i can see myself going to be using this a lot in development of you know even if we end up not it's not something you would say create a virtual machine and then push it to a production server you would create the virtual machine so you can develop inside of an environment that matches your production server right circumstances in this particular case we need to distribute so it works great for that Mm. I wonder if you can take an AMI and use that since we have that already. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't I don't know how you would use I uh, see I've wondered that before if you can download an AMI mm-hmm. from Amazon and and somehow use that as a as a virtual machine image in some other type of virtualization software. Right. Or if I, it's it's probably specific to Amazon. I mean Amazon machine image, it's probably something proprietary there that potentially doesn't play nice, but that'd be worth looking into. Yeah, because I've often wondered if I could just download a machine image and um, if for, for no other reason, maybe to be able to extract files from it as kind of a, you know, kind of a backup type thing. Mm. Right. Hmm. Well, that'd be good. Well, we should, we should look into that. That'd be good to know. So speaking of operating system environments, I think you upgraded to Mountain Lion? I did. Nice. How'd that go? Um, it killed my uh, compilers. Nuked my compilers, so I had to had to install Xcode 4.4. Mm. <laughs> you sound so depressed about that. I did. I don't like having Xcode on my machine. <laughs> Yeah, it is a sprawling beast. With Lion, I was able to install just kind of standalone LLVM compilers and 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 that sort of stuff. But that's not available yet for Mountain Lion, so I had to install the whole Xcode bundle, which it was fine. It just took some time, and now I have Xcode on my on my computers. And then it also 
seems to have nuked my uh, bash RC file, which caused me some confusion for a while. But what's going on there? I was able to go in and and redo things. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I had a similar similar experience. I've been running Mountain Lion for a little while, but I was having a lot of problems with my machine, um, especially when it seemed related to uh, when I would be in Chrome and try and watch a video, like even just a regular YouTube video, um, the whole machine would completely lock up. Just no mouse movement, nothing. Just dead. Yeah, that's that's not good. No, and so I was I was complaining about it online. It's also seemed partially related to the network, like the the uh, the wireless would seem to lock up. Uh, it seemed I you know I never really figured out what it was. But, um, you know, I just, when, when, uh, the real mountain lion, the final mountain lion was released, I wanted to do a clean install on my, uh, computer. So I was like, All right, well, um, first step was how do you do that with a machine that doesn't have, so two problems. One is I don't have a, uh, you know, a mountain lion installed disc. Yeah. And even if I did, the machine doesn't have an optical drive. Right, I was uh, ask you how you did that. Yeah, it's uh, it was a little. Uh, I can quickly give you the uh, an overview of it, but I'll link to the page that walked me through it. Uh, it basically complained about this on Twitter, and uh, Craig Hockenberry, you know, tweeted back with this link to a page that explained how to, first of all, download Mountain Lion because you have to get it through the App Store, and it's an installer. But so then, what do you do? Right. You know? yep. You end up extracting it from the installer? Yeah, you have to drill into the package and find the DMG that's like way down in there. And, you know, copy that out to your desktop or some some place where the permissions will change or you can change the permissions. And then uh, use disk utility to format a thumb drive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And eventually you end up with a thumb drive that's bootable. Mm Mm-hmm. And of course, it's you know I had to go get an uh, eight gigabyte thumb drive, which isn't unhurt. You know, it's not that uncommon these days. But I didn't have one. All mine were like two gig, and it needs to be about it needs to be about five gig. So I went out and got an eight gig thumb drive, uh, got that working, and did the clean install on the Mac. So when the uh, the the uh, you know it's an eleven inch MacBook Air, and when I got to the when I got to the uh, you know, that wizard, when you first start up the OS, I just skipped through everything. I didn't migrate anything, uh, didn't turn on anything. It was just completely stock install. And after that, I, I was, you know, most virtually everything that I do is in Dropbox or Gmail uh, or some other cloud service. All my music's in Amazon. There's really nothing on my machine um, with a few notable exceptions. And when I was going through the setup process, I actually made a list of everything I did as I set it up, uh, just out of curiosity. And I really didn't do that much. I mean, most of the time I spent with a brand new clean install of a machine. This is my main my main work machine that I'm on like 12 hours a day minimum. Yeah. I basically, you know, as soon as it was installed, I ripped all the icons out of the dock, set up my trackpad preferences, um, did a little browser configuration, like my download folder. I like things to download to the desktop, just like stupid little things like that. 
Then I downloaded all the other browser browsers like Chrome, Firefox, um, Opera, configured those, and then just installed Dropbox uh, and a couple of Moom, which I like for window management and transmit for FTP. Uh, and that was about it. Um, yeah, I was, I have my, my MacBook Air and then also I do, I do most of my development on my iMac. Mm-hmm. I also have my MacBook Air set up and you know, it's just a real, like a really good environment for just writing code and you know, anything, anything I need to do that's graphics related or Photoshop, Illustrator, that kind of stuff. Um, I end up doing on the, on the iMac because it's got the 21 inch monitor. So, right. But uh, the the MacBook Air is set up for doing development work, and um, I was surprised at how little I actually ended up doing to get that set up where I could you know, have a have a productive development environment. Yeah. Yep. It's it's really if you're using like a file sharing. Yeah. You know, it's it, it makes a huge it's a huge advantage. There were, like you, I had, a, I did have a couple of things that I had to manually um, recreate or manually copy over. So basically my, my SSH folder for my home, in my home directory, I had to copy over uh, from another machine. You know, the, uh, the .bash files, all that stuff. And uh, set up, you know, there were some things like Git I needed to install. But really stuff, it was basically stuff that I didn't, keep in Dropbox for security reasons like QuickBooks and and that SSH stuff, you know, my uh, private keys, you know, but it was, it was, I don't know, it was really not that big a deal. Yeah. Yeah. I um, think when I set up, when I set up the MacBook Air, um, was, actually I moved my, moved my user preferences file for Sublime Text into Dropbox. So. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, the only things I don't, how do you do? Th- Wait, can you you can specify? Uh, you can specify where the preferences for the app live. Uh, I just ended up doing a sim link. I see. So I just then I just go in and set up a sim link on the new, on the new computer to that to that Dropbox file. That's a good idea because I did have to install a couple of TextMate bundles, which is no big deal, but you know, it'd be one less thing to think about, and it's not a security thing. So another thing is that another thing I had to copy over was my chat logs because I spend so much time on chat that I'll go through and, and search for stuff in there. Um, that's probably a little more sensitive than I'd like to have in Dropbox, but uh, you know, occasionally I'll be passing passwords back and forth. But mm, that's interesting. One thing that one thing about Mountain Lion that I don't know if is new in Mountain Lion or not. I think it's new as of Lion. But um, no, no, no. This is new. This is Mountain Lion. So they took the, re- they removed the uh, checkbox for um, web serving out of the uh, accounts. So if you go into previously, you'd go into system preferences and you could go into sharing, and there's a bunch of stuff in there like file sharing, remote management, uh, screen sharing, and you can turn them on and off and set permissions for each one. And there used to be one for web sharing which would turn on Apache on your local drive and would allow you to put, uh, you know, websites either in the, you know, the, the sort of a root area of the machine or in a, a user sites folder. And yeah. that is now gone. Yeah, I did notice that 
installing Mountain Lion has screwed up my Apache configuration. I need to go back and, and, and fix that. And it's funny because I've been doing so much with Ruby and so I have when I need to test I just fire up a fire up thin and, and run it that way that I haven't actually used the Apache web server in a long time. Because you know, I really really only comes into play when I'm doing um, testing for PHP development. Mm -hmm. I noticed uh, yesterday that it had, had messed up my Apache configuration. Yep. Yeah, mine too. So uh, since I do more PHP, it's it's eh, it's fairly common that I need that. I mean, to tell you the truth, the last couple of years, most of my programming's just been JavaScript, so you don't need a web server for that. But um, but I did need a, a PHP running for the People.com project for some of the there's like a, a auto concatenation server side auto concatenation script for um, the CSS files and the JavaScript files that like jams them all into one on the fly, and you need to have for the local environment. It's a PHP thing, and you know, so I needed that in my local environment. And you know, you can go to the command line and you can start up Apache, and then you know, you, but you, you need to edit the config file and uncomment the PHP includes and blah 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 blah. I just I said forget it. I just in, uh, I have a license for MAMP, so I just installed that and said forget about it. Uh, yeah. Normally, I would argue against that, but I'm getting to the point where I don't use Apache that much, so whatever. Yeah, I just don't use it that much, so it's like I just and I didn't want to mess around with it. And it's probably, it's the thing that I liked about it is that I don't want to be, you know, me. I, I don't want to muck around with my setting up my development environment because I jump from machine to machine enough that it's too annoying. Uh, so just to just to be able to go bing bang boom and be up and running is is worth a lot to me yeah and that um actually i have thought thought in the past about doing it and i may actually do it now that i have to uh it's either do this or or fix apache um i've thought about just turning off apache and installing nginx oh yeah yeah i mean i it, it would make sense for you definitely because that's more your cup of tea i just haven't been uh I just haven't gotten there yet. Still, it's still like, it's just so easy for me to do. Like, I just know Apache so well. I'm stuck in my ways. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. So, Mountain Lion, I will say, the new clean install is much better behaved on my machine. So, that's, that's very nice because there's little that's more frustrating than... Uh, a machine that's constantly locking up on you and will not connect to the network. That is annoying. Yes, this is <laughs> this is why I no longer work at our. Uh, we own a family business. We have a computer repair business, and this is why I no longer work there. It was frustrating for me. <laughs> well, you probably had a lot of old keyboards around that you could smash. Uh, yeah. Well, you know that's that's how I got my Model M. And I, I saw it up in the closet last night, and I'm thinking, man, I really miss that keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> the Kerchunk keyboard? Yeah, that's that's how I got into the habit of taking notes on on in, like, a, a, a regular notebook, like, spiral-bound, not computer, <laughs> and stuff, because I would be on phone calls, and I'd be taking notes on the computer, and... <laughs> 
you know, it was like, okay, you you can't take notes during our meeting unless you switch keyboards. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like the classic old school. Um, it was manufactured in 1986. Yeah, to military specifications. Found it. I found it in the back room of a storage shed covered in like 15 years of dirt and grease, and I brought it home and cleaned it up, and it looks like new and works great. So. <laughs> keyboard that would survive that anymore no no and and on the plus side if someone breaks into my office i can i can use it to fend off my attacker because it's <laughs> often welcome enough that i could probably beat someone to death with it and still go back to typing <laughs> i'm i'm ready for the zombie apocalypse excellent <laughs> kickstarter film <laughs> fending off zombies with a keyboard Model M keyboard. <laughs> so you want to hear a funny tangent of speaking of keyboards? Sure. I've been continued. I've been continuing to research, um, uh, look for references for my uh, upcoming talk at uh, BDConf mm -hmm. uh, about you know kind of talking about the 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 zombie apocalypse and how to what we can do to get ready for a day when you know, the iPhone looks like a fax machine and, or a, a Model M keyboard. <laughs> and I stumbled across a video last night that was not specifically related to that talk, but was about um, uh, online security and security, uh, uh, not hacks, but like three, three different kinds of online attacks, I think is the title of the talk. Mm -hmm. And he starts off, uh, the guy's name is unpronounceable to me. I apologize, but I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, and he starts off by talking, a, by by putting a picture of like an old school typewriter up on the screen, like like old before even you know brother electric key, you know typewriters. If anybody even remembers that, and he says uh, there was a time that the German government um, kept track of every single typewriter in the country. If you had a typewriter, you had to register it with the government, and that registration included typing out a, a page and submitting it so that if um, they found typed material somewhere that uh, they didn't agree with in terms of the ideas, uh, they could track you down. Yeah, I remember reading something about that. That's like horrifying, right? <laughs> That's... I'm not like a big privacy guy. I, I'm, I'm, it's for me, data, the web, it's all about sharing and openness and transparency, but there's a difference between, there's a difference between, I don't know, it's not a privacy issue so much as a freedom issue. And anyway, it, it gets weird, but, but I was utterly horrified by, um, that notion. It just had a visceral negative reaction to it, even if I can't really put into words um why so then he goes on to say you know but that's that's like ancient history right that doesn't happen anymore so then he goes on to say that currently in today today's environment in this day and age um every inkjet printer sprays a pattern a light pattern of yellow dots on every page that's unique to your printer so that printed pages can be tracked back to you wow and I don't even believe that, 
but I, 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 he has to be right. I mean, like what he, he must have the facts to back that up. Seems like I've heard it before, but I, I don't know. Yeah, that's very. It makes me want to take the yellow ink out of my printer. <laughs> no wonder, no wonder it's always yelling at me when the yellow gets low. Yeah, it does. It's like what? running out of yellow <laughs> i mean that is offensive you know i mean I, and and it's weird because it sort of does a little bit go against i don't know what it is the sneakiness of it i think you know so then he goes on to talk about um other you know the ramifications of this and he, he's his his thesis basically is that it's not about it's not about um privacy so much as freedom versus control and that that uh the phone companies which this does tie back into into you know because even who even cares about inkjet printers really i mean who's distributing pamphlets on you know physical paper but you know it rolls up to uh, mobile and the the information that your phone is tracking about you and in general, in the past, I've sort of subscribed to the, uh, well, I don't have anything to hide, so who cares? But, you know, the point made in the video is, okay, fine, you know, you trust the government as it exists right now, but if you give up this freedom or you, you give up access to this data, what if you find yourself at odds with the government in the future and you, you know, and there's some ultra-conservative in the White House that starts cracking down on things and you fall afoul of that and... And he's got a he's got a point. I mean, things change. Yeah. And and you know, so this uh, this is actually uh, another video that I'll link to, but it was in the same series of TED talks um, of a guy from the EU who subpoenaed Deutsche Telekom to uh, he wanted his data that they had, and uh, they wouldn't do it. And eventually, the um, the government. Let's see. So there was a, the government ruled that um, the law under which Deutsche Telekom was collecting this data was ruled unconstitutional. And as part of a, a settlement, because the dude sued them, as part of the settlement, they, they sent him just a, a CD, no label, no nothing, just a CD of the, the last six months of data that they had on him. And so he took that CD and it had like over 30 or 40,000 lines of code. Now this is the phone company, right? And they had, they had, everything they had enough data about him on that disc that uh, he created a visualization that showed his activity so it, it's shocking so like you know he's in his his house you could see when he was sleeping you could see when he took the train to go see someone else you can see the calls he was making to and to whom while he was going and his email hmm. yeah I mean it it's intimate knowledge of this guy and and you know he had not only he had to sue to get access to this data right so then if you imagine if you sort of put these two these two talks together the uh you know maybe maybe the government doesn't care so much about me in particular but if you zoom out and look at the data in aggregate it's at which they do in the video it's easy to see where um you know where people are when so imagine a protest a big protest you'd be able to identify exactly who was there and you'd also be able to identify who the leaders were that 
organized that because they would be really, really bright nodes on this graph of communications. And then you could just zoom into the bright nodes and see who the, who the, you know, the, the rabble rousers were, if you will. So, you know, it's, uh, it's chilling. Definitely. It's definitely worth watching and it does tie into mobile and, and the future of computing, which is why I bring it up. So fun times. <laughs> everything is so connected that you know i mean it doesn't surprise me at all that 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 technology is out there and that it exists and that someone somewhere is using it <laughs> right like you said it's disturbing but I, i'm i'm not surprised by it at all and it's only been as, as more and more things become connected it's just going to become a bigger issue yeah yeah, I mean it's it's um, when they can when they can track, you know, everything you do. I, I on the one hand, I feel like there should be you know there should be outrage, and we should demand at least at least access to our own data at least, which right now we we really don't have, probably because it would enrage people. Um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, I there's this total you know, Unabomber in me that is like, you know, create a new network. Like, I don't, like, I feel like there needs to be, ISPs are a major problem. Like having an ISP and a, and a cell carrier are, those are points of failure. Those are choke points that make me very uncomfortable on, you know, the, the communication platform that is the free and open internet has like some major, major gatekeepers, you know, at the walls. And that really bothers me. I don't like it. And I realize the trade-off is that, you know, maybe, um, you know, there, there could be people doing things that I want them to be caught for, if that makes sense. But that's not, for me, that's not worth the trade-off, which is, uh, to me, scarier, which is the government surveilling um citizens for no that have done nothing you know so it's maybe a little bit of a get off my lawn you kids type of a type of a conversation but as as you know your utility meter and your light switches and uh you know the gps on your dog's collar and your washing machine there'll be like nothing that isn't uh data about you know that every piece of data about you will be it needs to be, it'll be available, which is scary because then it can go anywhere. So you just, there needs to be a way to have control over that. Like you need to be able to control your own data, control access to it. By the way, is does there exist yet a GPS dog collar? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it'll, it can text you and stuff. They have it in Target. I was just looking at it yesterday. It's nice. Your dog gets out, you can track them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Get one of those for my kid. So, yeah, they do. Ha that that does exist. The key for the yard just isn't working. <laughs> Cheaper than a fence. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's funny. That's kind of scary. With did you see the video? The video I sent you with a completely fictional account of just kind of everything everything integrated. No, I tried to watch it the other day and it locked up. I gotta go back to that. It was called Sight. Yeah, and the idea the idea was sort of a 
That's like Google Gla- Google Glass to the extreme, and and just kind of overlaid as I don't know, maybe a contact lens or or some kind of implant. Mm. Just a. I don't know. It's it's very. It was it was both funny funny and and disturbing, in, in <laughs> the sorts of. I mean, you know, like it showed a guy like. You know, he was in a in a compart in a in an apartment with completely blank bare walls and everything, and and yet he would look around and he would see paintings on the walls and a television set with video playing and that sort of stuff. So you know, completely fictitious, but it's just it's wacky. I mean, if you imagine in the context of like losing control of all this personal data, you could just like why couldn't he just look through the walls of the people in the next apartment and like be seeing things about them? Oh, that's yeah, that's creepy. Yeah. We have the we have the makings of a sci-fi novel here. Yeah, it's, it's it's been written right. I mean, like this is this is a neuromancer basically. But yeah, I mean, it's there, there's a video game. Um, is it Deus Ex? I don't. I'll see. I'll I'll try and find it and link to it. But there's a video of the gameplay. And the, the premise is that the protagonist is a hacker and he walks around with and, and with his phone, he can control the city grid and and anything that's on it. Um, so you basically you see him walk into like a nightclub and, uh, he, you know, he can like shut off the he walks into a nightclub. He can connect with everybody's phones and know who's there. He finds the person he's looking for. He goes over and, you know, makes contact with that person. And then he, he overhears, uh, the, the person is like a bad guy and the person calls, the bad guy calls the bad guy boss. And now, and so the protagonist goes outside and he, he can see on his GPS, the bad guy boss coming down the road toward him. So he shuts off the, the, the traffic light and a bunch of cars, you know, go through a green light in both directions and then the bad guy boss gets in a huge car accident and it's, it goes on and on the, the it's obviously somewhat far it's it's obviously far-fetched but the graphics are so amazing and the and the and one feels like we might not be all that far away from that kind of a grid at least yeah so that you're like well if that if that grid exists it's like the it's like a data grid not it's like more than the electricity grid it's a data grid for a city what would happen if somebody could get control over pieces of that be crazy if it exists someone is going to exploit it right at some point yeah so i i got it that video it's kind of long it's probably about five minutes long but it's it's worth watching it looks like a fun game too (laughs) (laughs) yeah Wow. So, geez, I think we're, wow, we're already over an hour. That went fast. Huh. Did you have uh, anything you, else you wanted to squeeze into this week? Uh, not a, not a whole lot, really. Uh, it's been kind of a slow week for me just finishing up. I've got a couple of, a couple of projects finished for, for very, very loose definitions of finished. <laughs> I guess, I guess you could say the, the initial development round right. finished on both of the projects we're working on right now so cool all right so that's our show for this week i'm jonathan stark kelly shaver 
and we hope to have you again next week on the Niche Podcast. See you later.